This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. The idea of weakness, I think all of us would agree, is not necessarily something that we just look for. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go out and find some weakness today. We do our best to avoid weakness as if it's a plague, and Part of that is what I want to touch on today, is I want to touch on the fact that God is going to, in his word, say something different about weakness. Now, some of the times, the weakness that we are experiencing is a result of of sin in this world. And so it's not that we are desiring sin or the effects of sin in our life. Some of the times, the weakness that we're experiencing is a result of the devil's havoc that he's playing in our life, and he's robbing from us in some regard. He's undermining us. He's He's eating the fruit on the vine and stealing it. He's a thief. And yet, those things, even marshaled by the enemy, when appropriated properly in the heart, the mind, the soul of the Christian, can be leveraged unto great strength. It's a funny thing to talk about great strength and use the word weakness as the platform for it. And yet that's actually how the kingdom of heaven works, which is why we as the church of Jesus Christ have to consistently be reminded about this because we have a natural repulsion to the idea of weakness. There's no attraction to us in a natural sense. And so over the years, when I, when I get to one of these key topics, uh, which they all sort of cluster together in the gospel, but I'll usually use the illustration of manure and I'll say, our natural disposition to manure is we're against it, don't like it. And yet, I was, I was checking, I just desired, I did a, a Google search on uh, manure to see how expensive it was. So a 50-pound bag for $175, I was like, wow. Okay, that's, that's, if, if you have manure, you have gold. <laughs> that's like, hey, that's worth something there. And that's what's interesting is the devil throws manure on our life, and depending on how we look at it, we could say, hey, what are you doing? Or thank you for the donation. In other words, he's given us something that has value if you see it as valuable. And so that's where I want us to do a flip on the way things work in this natural realm and start to look at it from a heavenly mindset and recognize that difficulties, challenges, tribulations, trials, sufferings, manure, weakness, are actually a leverage, a strength point for us as believers. So uh, the brilliance of weakness is what this message is called. My subtitle, The Strange Secret of Spiritual Strength. Uh, this particular uh, graphic, you know, Annie designs it and then sends it out uh, to our team. And then Hudson has, you know, a filter on his entire, you know, all his internet use and everything. So if he's doing anything dubious, it, it comes to daddy. And uh, so he was doing something dubious. You know what he was doing? He got this graphic in his email uh, inbox. And so it said, this is what it popped up as, medically concerning content. (laughs) So I'm just going to warn all of you that what we're about to uh, go into is medically concerning. (laughs) I thought that was a pretty hilarious uh, statement. So let's look at the 1828 definition in Webster's Dictionary for weakness. 
weakness, it's a noun. Want of physical strength, want of force or vigor, feebleness, want of sprightliness, want of steadiness, infirmity, unhealthiness, want of moral force or effect upon the mind, want of judgment, feebleness of mind, foolishness, defect, failing, fault. Whew, that's quite the list there. Okay, we don't want any of that. And that's why it's so interesting because in the natural sense, yeah, none of us want this. And yet, we're all going to walk through seasons or situations in our life where we're going to encounter weakness. And how we appropriate that is going to define the success or failure of our life. Weakness, so here's a unique definition. The amazing gift that no one wants. Don't you realize how valuable that is? Why doesn't anyone want this 50-pound bag of manure? Don't you realize that that sells for $175 on Amazon? I mean, that's, that's worth a lot, and yet everyone's like, hey, I don't want that, hey, I don't want that. That has a smell to it. There is sort of a smell to weakness that is not attractive to our natural man nostrils. And yet, if we could see it through God's lens, watch out, world. Weakness. Now, this is Eric's uh, attempt to try and articulate something. I don't know if it did it. Even as I was staring at these words, I was like, I don't know if it's saying it just quite right. The only condition through which grace moves, strength flows, and power is revealed. So there's a condition of soul that is almost like kindling for the fire of God. And, you know, if you have wet wood, it just doesn't kindle. But if it's dry, or if I could say it's weakness, it's humble, it's contrite, God's fire kindles upon it. Weakness is that state, that condition. The only sole climate in which grace reigns, strength grows, and the power of God is evidenced. There, have you ever heard it said, it's like, yeah, you know, uh, corn doesn't grow in this climate. I don't know corn. That was a terrible illustration. I should have said something like peaches don't grow in this climate. And there are climates in which certain things can prosper. Well, the grace of God, the strength of God, and the power of God, the climate that it prospers in is weakness. I mean, it's strange that none of us want to move to the area of weakness so that we can grow grace, strength, and power, do we? And yet you're going to see in Scripture an invitation to move your life away from physical, natural man's strength to a place of weakness. Jesus is going to basically sell everything and move to the cross. He is going to give up even his clothing. He's going to give up his dignity. He's giving it all up, and he is trading in that weakness and purchasing all of us. He is taking something of extreme value, which is weakness, and he is gaining something. There is something that can only be gained through weakness. And yet many of us aren't that excited about going to where the place of weakness is. Hebrews 11, 32 through 34. This is in the the classic chapter on faith, Hebrews 11. And so it's just one little segment, but obviously you see that I'm making one little line bold in there. But let's get a little context to it. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, 
worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Through faith, these heroes of the faith did amazing things. One of them I made bold for us so that we could meditate upon it. And that is, who through faith, out of weakness, were made strong. The grammar in it is weird, okay, which is why I'm going to correct the grammar for us, because that isn't how you would say it in the English language. You would say it this way. Who through faith were made strong out of weakness. What was their strength? Well, weakness. Their great secret sauce was weakness, and they were made strong that way. Where does this strength come from? Where did these superheroes come from? Weakness. None of us really wants to go to that place and leave the place of strength, sell all we have to gain weakness. And yet that deliberate choice to give up in order to get something greater is the transaction that is at the core, the fundamental starting point for true Christianity. If you're holding on and grasping to your natural man's strength, you're not yet ready to wield the strength of heaven. The strength of heaven is only gained in and through the letting go of this world, the things of this world, the reputation that you have in this world, the comforts of this world, the material riches of this world. We have to be willing to let them go. And when we do, we find something that this world could never purchase. It is far more valuable than any of the things we give up. So I'm going to focus on two kinds of weakness. Technically, I'm going to focus on one kind of weakness, but I'm mentioning two kinds. Psychological weakness and practical weakness. Technically, instead of, with practical weakness, I could have broken that up into physical weakness, and I would have had another P, and it would have been brilliant, and I was thinking about that after I sent in my keynote. But we're going to, I have physical weakness, which is under practical. So psychological weakness. These are slightly different forms of weakness, but they have the same benefit to us. Have you ever been around a lot of people that seem to have their life together, their act together, and they seem to really be doing something in life, or they seem to have made a lot of money, or they seem to be very successful, and then you feel like you're being measured against them? They're probably not measuring you. You're measuring yourself. And, or the devil's helping you measure. I'm not sure how, how you'd articulate it, but you feel very unimportant. You feel very smallish, which is why I'm using that word, that you don't have a lot of value. I mean, what good are you? I mean, look at you. Look at, they've done something with your life, but look at you, okay? I'm gonna call that psychological weakness, this inferior feeling that we have. Okay, and then the other side is practical weakness. Now, I'm using a term funds are low, but this could be your strength is low, your physical health is low. Okay, it's a practical, physical, it's affecting you in the natural sense that you don't have the money to do that. This guy over here seems to have all the money he could ever dream of. He doesn't even know God, and yet look at him. He's successful. You've given your life to God, yet you have nothing in the bank. And you have a natural weakness, and as a result... We have a tendency to complain about that. God, could you fix my natural weakness? Could you give me a lot of money? I could do great work in this world if I had a lot of money. I used to talk to God about the fact that if he gave me a million dollars, I would tithe 10%. I thought God would be like, whoa, what a great deal. I get a hundred, I give you a million, but I get a hundred thousand out of that? I mean, it was like, yeah, yeah, that's the deal, God. And I don't, I don't know if he's excited, as excited about that as I was. Uh, I thought it was a great deal on paper. 
the point is, many of us, well, many of us, none of us want weakness. We want strength, and we feel like we could serve God so much better if we had it. And yet God's saying, I want to give you strength. Don't get me wrong. However, to get that strength, you have to embrace that weakness. It's when you keep shooing away the weakness that my strength can't kindle. I can't flow through your life to show my strength. You're just trying to show your strength. That's the problem. You want to show that your life is together. It's like the old uh, class reunion thing. Now, I don't know if it's as big of a deal. I haven't heard about class reunions for a while. I haven't been invited to a class reunion for a long time. But I do remember my 10-year class reunion. Yeah, I graduated in 1989, so I'm guessing it was 1999 that this all happened. See, that's me doing some good math on it. And I tell you what, it is a very real phenomenon that you want to look as if you've accomplished something. There is a very real pressure. You know that people will go out and rent a sports car and to drive to their uh, reunion. It's a, it's a phenomenon. It happens. People want to look to their classmates as if they have succeeded in life. It is a weird pressure that we feel in life is to prove that we are something. And yet, what if your life doesn't look impressive to the world? Okay, that's what I want to talk about. What if it doesn't look impressive to you? And those are hard things to walk through. But actually, it is a gift. And if you would leverage it, instead of sticking your thumb in your mouth and, and uh, going into self-pity mode, if you were to turn outward and leverage it, the kingdom of heaven can explode in your life if you leverage it properly. So let's talk about smallishness uh, first off. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I've been around a lot of very, we could say successful, influential men in the past week. And I, I, I would acknowledge that I have had moments of feeling very small in this past week even. But it's interesting, I've also seen a lot of other men around me feel small in the past week. And so that's part of my meditation. That's actually not where this message came from. It's just more of a, huh, that's interesting. I did walk through that this week. And there's a propensity of feeling like you're nothing. And I don't know if it's all the devil or if part of it's like our contribution to where we're just very quick to uh, be hard on ourselves. I don't know. The, you know, I, I didn't spend a lot of time trying to break that uh, science down of how these things work, but we are all susceptible to it. And we had a gathering of uh, 40 guys here from around the country, and it's interesting how many guys can feel like they don't belong. It's like, I don't, I don't belong here. Everyone else seems to really have a reason to be here, but I don't. Well, it's weird because if you go to everyone, they all feel the same thing. How do they all feel the same thing? Like they don't belong here. They're the one that doesn't belong here. It's a very common thing. At Ellerslie, when we have a semester here, it's a very common thing. Everyone else is spiritual, and I'm the one. If they just knew me, they would reject me. It's very common, okay? And so what I want us to recognize is that there is a bait that is presented to us. The devil wants to grind us into the dirt. He wants us to give way to various movements of soul that are going to destroy us. And so what he does is he plies weakness or reminds us of our weaknesses, okay? And this is what I'm going to call psychological weakness. So when you feel pathetically unimportant. So I'm going to give you a technique here. I'm going to call it the brilliant investment. When you feel pathetically unimportant, when you feel small, there's a 
tendency in your soul to go to certain things because that's what you've always gone towards, okay? Self-pity, anxiety, condemnation. There's various things that we have a tendency towards, okay? Little did you know, but weakness is a tradable commodity in the spiritual realm. In fact, it is worth a lot. Most of us trade it out immediately upon receiving it for self-pity, insecurity, anxiety, condemnation, depression, and the like. But the Christian knows what to do with their super valuable weakness. They go to God with it and trade it out for sufficient grace, heavenly strength, and enabling power. If you ever feel that, it's almost like, here's my mental picture. The devil is sticking a bag of coins on your soul and it's weighing down. And it's like, you're nothing. And yet that bag of coins, which is weakness, which is trying to press you into the dirt, if you were to take that, instead of going down with it, you go, huh, thank you. Thank you for that sense of smallishness because I'm going to give it to God and thank him that I am not the savior. Thank him that I am not needing to be the important one. He is. And when you go to God with that sensation, that psychological downward movement against you and you trade it in, you get grace, you get strength, and you get power for living this life out. So, This is the other sort of weakness, which is where I'm going to camp most of today because this is where most of us are going to function in a common sense. Funds are low. It could be physical strength is low. Have you ever heard the quote from C.T. Studd? Funds are low. Hallelujah. (laughs) So funds are low. When you feel pathetically unable. I can't do that, God. Feed the 5,000, oh, disciples. What? (laughs) Our funds are too low for that, God. He has us exactly where he needs us when that's the situation. Funds are low is the ultimate setup for God's power. However, we don't see it that way. We just see funds being low. We don't recognize that he has set a stage in which he can demonstrate his strength, which is why C.T. Studd says, hallelujah. So, Historically at Ellerslie, we've, we've called it the puddle principle. The puddle principle comes from a moment when I was mowing my lawn, uh, oh, I don't know how many years ago this was, 12, 13 years ago. And uh, I remember I was trying to pull the, the starter cord on it, and I saw our Montero, and the, the tires on it were bald. And, and then I, I thought of uh, Leslie's minivan in the front, and the tires were bald. And Hudson was just a little uh, baby at the time. And I'm, I know that she needs to be safe, but we don't have money for tires. And tires are not cheap. And to, it has to be the most unromantic. I know that Dwight uh, sells tires, so he's probably going to get offended by this. But it's probably the most unromantic purchase you could ever make in your life is on rubber tires. Is that what they're made of, rubber? Yeah, they're made of rubber. Mostly. Oh, there's other stuff in there. And so it's hard, right? And I had this whole discussion with God. It's like, God, I would, buy, I would buy the tires if I had the money. And so God's response back was something like this. It wasn't like a audible conversation. It was one of those unique discussions where you just sort of have a sense you know what God's saying. So Eric, you don't have the money for it? And you see, I had enough money in my bank account to buy tires at that exact moment. However, my, that money was going to pay my mortgage, so I, in my mind, I don't have the money. And God's like, so you're saying you don't have the money for it? Well, no, no. You see, I, I do have the money, but that money's already, like, asked for. It's already allocated. So you do have the money. 
Well, no, no. I, I, see, I have the money, but it's already going to be spent in the future. So you actually have the money, and you could buy the tires right now. Well, yeah, but then I wouldn't have enough for the mortgage. And he sort of seemed to put his finger on that. It's like, what do you mean you wouldn't have enough? Who do you serve? Oh, this was a hard moment for me, okay? I was really struggling with this one because this, it was pressing on every button in me that would lead to a sense of insecurity. God, I don't want to set myself up for that where I have to trust you for my mortgage then. <laughs> I, you know, I'd rather trust you with tires that are bald, <laughs> you know, and my family driving around on balding tires. Okay, I don't like that either. Oh, this is a terrible moment. And yet, what I felt like God was asking me to do is to take what was in the puddle. This is why we call it the puddle principle. So there's this gigantic aquifer. Imagine this room is an aquifer. It's just full of resource, and it's all that God possesses. And up above, you know, sort of where these beams are is the physical realm where we live. And what I see in the physical realm is a little puddle. And it's just enough to get by. It's like just enough to pay my bills and to, you know, do this. And I have a little puddle. Well, I want to save that puddle for, for this. And God says, do you trust me? Because I have the aquifer. And if you dip into that for what you need, and you know I'm putting a burden on your heart to do, because I say I want you to get tires. God wants us to get tires. See, that, that's to pay back to you, Dwight, to let everyone know it's good to get tires. Uh, and when I do, that God will supply. And w- what happens? You, you dip in, you take what's in the puddle, and what happens? Bloop. The puddle fills back up. Now, what we really wish is that it would fill up like Lake Michigan. Instead, it's like, bloop, it's just like this little puddle. God, come on, could you expand my puddle a little? And sometimes he allows us to go through seasons where our puddle expands, and then sometimes he takes us through other seasons where it's very small. The aquifer never changes. And part of what God wants to train us is that that weakness that we feel there is actually a great opportunity for us to remember that he supplies Sometimes he wants to diminish what we have in the natural and up and above the surface so that he can test us and try us in our faith to say, but do you know who owns the aquifer? So giving up the little in order to gain the more. So how do I see the supply of God? I'm obedient with my puddle. And if I'm obedient with my puddle to give it when he asks for it, then he will supply. See, this is a faith supply. So, the gospel is built on this exact premise. We'll call it the gospel exchange, giving up the little in order to gain the more. So in every situation in life, I'm giving up my dreams, my desires. I'm giving up my reputation. I'm giving up my future. I'm giving up things, and they seem so valuable to me. And yet, compared to what God is wanting to do in my life, they're pathetically small. The things we give up are so important to us, but what God wants to give us is so much greater. So I've likened it to the handful of pebbles. You know, we're holding on to it. It's like, oh, my handful of pebbles. Well, that handful of pebbles is not actually worth anything. And God wants to give us train cars full of jewels. And we're like, oh, but my pebbles. You see, it's giving up the little so that we can gain. It's a trade. We're trading our weakness in for God's strength. It's okay. So Matthew 13, 44 through 46, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man is found, he hides and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We've got a transaction going on here. He has to enter into weakness and give up everything he has, but it's, it's a transaction. He's giving up everything he has to get something 
better. Now, that's, that's how it works in, in natural man investments as well. However, we're, tra- we're transacting in a natural realm and giving up what we have in a natural realm to gain something in a different realm. That's why it's hard for us, because we can't see it. We can't taste it. We can't handle it. So I'm giving up property down here to get something I can't see. And however, by the way, if there is a recession, it's unaffected. It's it's an extraordinary investment with incredible returns, but we can't see it. It's hard as a result. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So remembering the spike nard, giving up the little in order to gain the more. Mary had something that to her didn't feel like a little. I mean, technically, according to the scriptures, it was worth a year's wages. And yet she saw something of greater value. She saw Jesus. And so she took that which was little. And by the way, I've, I've gone into great detail in Spikenard and teaching people on Spikenard. In the, the translation, it actually puts two Greek words together, pastikos and nardos. Nardos meaning spikenard. Pastikos meaning the object of one's faith. Mary had an object of faith called spikenard. If ever it got difficult, if ever funds got low, if ever this happened, it's, it's a med, it was a medical help. and it, it has an amazing healing quality to it, spikenard does. And it had a financial value. And yet she recognized she was putting her confidence in this spikenard. And when Jesus came along, what did she need to do? She needed to give up the little to gain the more. And this is the principle. And Jesus is going to say, what this woman has done is going to be shared every time you share the gospel. Why? Because that is the invite to the gospel. Give up the little so that you could gain the more. Give up your life so that you could have all that Jesus desires to give you. The widow's opportunity. Now, I'm purposely choosing the term opportunity because it's anything but what we would deem an opportunity. Opportunity is a positive word, which is why I'm using it. There's a widow called the widow of Zarephath in the Old Testament that Elijah is going to come to, if you remember that story. And he is going to give this widow an opportunity. Now, most of us, like I said, would not use the word opportunity. We would use like crisis, trial, uh, miserable situation, And yet everything about this is going to showcase the power, the strength of God. And so it's an opportunity, just like it is for us. Your weakness is an opportunity. So strength proven through the greatest weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So everything I'm saying is just what Paul teaches. This is that situation where he has the thorn in the flesh and he's prayed three times for it to be removed. And yet God is going to speak to him in this. It's like, Paul, you need to learn how to take advantage of this weakness. And so as a result, Paul's conclusion is, so I take pleasure What? I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What's his secret of strength? Weakness. 
And once he realizes that, he starts passing it on to us. It takes a lot for us to finally get this one, though, because we know that scripture backwards and forwards, upside down and inside out. We're like, yeah, I know that scripture. Well, then why aren't you rejoicing in weakness? Why is it that we are repelling the weakness as opposed to embracing it and taking pleasure? <laughs> what a word, taking pleasure. One thing is to put up with it and not complain. But to take pleasure, and it means you see the benefit of it. This is really good. Like working out in the gym. I, I use that illustration a lot. But I enjoyed working out in the gym so much. I used to work out twice a day when I was in college in the gym. And it releases something in your body that you sort of get addicted to. And I was probably addicted. It sounds terrible. But I was probably addicted to these endorphins. And to the point where I took great pleasure in extreme difficulty. Isn't that funny? I mean, working out is not fun, is it? To me it was, but not because the pain wasn't real pain. It's that I knew what the pain was producing. It was producing strength. And so as a result, I embraced that difficulty knowing that it was producing something greater in me and I even wanted it. It's like, yeah, I need to go to, the, to, to work out. You're always working out, Ludi. Well, I have to, there's like, I was somehow dependent upon it. So there probably was a negative aspect to that, but I'm not wanting you to focus on that part. First Kings 17, eight through 15. So let's get into this story about the widow of Zarephath. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, and this is to Elijah the prophet, who has been by that brook. He's been fed supernaturally all this time. And then the brook dries up. And so suddenly he's weak again. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Okay, a little backstory. We're in the midst of a drought, a severe famine. Because this prophet, the same guy here, has prayed that the heavens would be sealed and no rain would come upon Israel. And it hasn't. And so God has been supernaturally sustaining Elijah with this brook and with a raven who comes and brings him meat every day. I mean, it's a pretty cool story. And then that suddenly stops and God commands this. Now, where does he send him? He sends him, <clears throat> could you imagine if you're Elijah? You could look at this story from two different sides. One is Elijah and the other one's the widow. But if you're Elijah and you're like, okay, God, what supernatural thing do you want to do next? I've commanded a widow woman in Zarephath to supply for you, to provide for you. Okay, that is like laugh out loud ridiculous. Okay, in a crisis like this, a widow is the most dependent person in all of society. She is going to be the least likely to be able to supply, and yet he's commanded. <laughs> he's commanded a widow woman to supply. Well, doesn't that sound like us? Like Jesus says, feed them. Well, there's like 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Feed them. I've commanded my disciples to feed all of you. I, I've commanded them to, to figure it out. Well, that's weakness. They don't have in and of themselves what they need, and God's setting the stage to demonstrate his strength. We see the same thing here. Uh, could you give me a cup of water? Uh, you do know that we're in a drought. 
Okay, you know how valuable water is? Yeah, could you give me, could you imagine she has this little cup left, it's been sitting there, it's like her, it's even labeled, my last cup of water. Yeah, could you give me that last cup of water? Oh, and by the way, could you, uh, what, what did he say? Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Okay, now for us, at this juncture in the storage, sounds like a pretty normal request, right? However, what he's asking cuts very deep, and I'll explain that as, as we progress. So she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread. So Eric, uh, why aren't your tires fixed on your car? Well, God, as the Lord lives, I don't have the resource to pay for new tires. So I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. In other words, it's the last little bit. And what does Elijah come and ask for? Yeah, I'd like that last cup of water there on the shelf. And uh, by the way, could you give me the last bit of oil and water, oil and uh, flour that you have? Mix that into a little cake and I'll eat that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Boy, that's going to taste good. It's a widow. Everything about this somewhat violates our entire idea of how God would care for a widow. I mean, come on, God, this is an inappropriate approach. And yet this is like Jesus coming to us. We're, we're like the widow. We are the least likely characters to, to sustain the glory of God in a generation. He's coming to us saying, yeah, I would like you to carry my name. Like, God, I, I am so small I am so weak. There are other people in this world that could do this so much better. Why are you choosing us? Why he's commanded the widow woman to do it is part of the great mystery, but he seems to really like weakness as his thoroughfare. His stage is being set. So, and Elijah said to her, this is his response, do not fear Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and your son. Well, after I do that, there will be nothing left for me and my son. Go dip into that puddle and buy those tires. Then come back and pay your mortgage. But God, if I dip into that, I won't have enough to pay my mortgage. See, Eric, you don't know how the kingdom of heaven works. A widow, you don't understand how the kingdom of heaven works. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. Guys, brace yourselves. If there's seat belts, put them on. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor the, shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So as she embraces her weakness, as she gives up the little water she has, as she gives up the little oil and flour that she has, what does she discover? She discovers the power of God. She discovers the strength of God. The grace of God is able to flow in this widow's house. God is actually caring for that widow. But to care for that widow, he needs to empty that widow of everything she has. Could you, you have a little more flour in there. Could you make another cake? Because I know I saw you looking longingly at it and you were like sort of stashing it in the corner going, God, maybe God won't see that. 
Yeah, I saw that. And could you add that to the morsel as well? Thank you. That's going to taste really good. So what? God, what are you doing? He's demonstrating his power and his strength. And as long as that widow has a little water and a little oil and a little flour, it could look like she was sustaining herself. But when she gives up the little she has, who gets the credit? God sustained that woman. And through that woman, he sustained the mighty prophet. This is his incredible plan. Weakness. 1 Kings 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. Okay, now this is a tough, tough little stretch of time here. So this woman is a widow, which means she is extremely dependent. Uh, and she, especially when her son is young, she's dependent upon gifts from people around her. I mean, it's a tough place to be. She has one hope in life, a little bottle of spikenard. You know what that is? Her son. Because if her son can grow up and be strong, he can supply for her. So she has a little bottle of spikenard. And what happens? I mean, this is, you almost feel like it's unfair. I mean, this is not right. Have you ever felt that about your life too? That's unfair, God. You can't do this to me. Other people don't seem to have the same trials I have. Why do I get trial upon trial? And then with an exclamation mark under it and underlining with a highlighter pen. Why do my trials have to seem so big? I'm sure Job had a few thoughts like that too. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. Uh-oh. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. I've always thought that was just a very humorous way of describing the guy dying. There was no breath left in him. Instead of his, his sickness was so serious that he died. No, his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. And Elijah said to her, give me your son. Okay, now let's go back. Give me that cup of water. Give me the flour. Give me the oil. Give me your son. Now, could you imagine this, this lady is holding her son. She's weeping over him. Could you give me your son? You see, she's still holding on, gripping. God, I can't let go of him. Unless you let go of him, he can't live. Unless you let go of the strength points in your life, the dependencies that you have upon the world in which we live, and let it go to God, he can't bring the supernatural life. So he took him out of her arms and Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house. Now, he's just done a, a miracle up there. And gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. See, your flour doesn't run out. See, your oil doesn't run out. See, you will be supplied for it. You give to God the little you have. And he supplies for you. Out of weakness. So here was our phrase in Hebrews 11, who through faith were made strong out of weakness. How are we as the church going to be made strong? Out of weakness. One of the things you'll see in studying the church uh, globally and even historically is that when the church comes under great duress, persecution, and difficulty, it has a tendency to thrive. And a lot of those more supernatural demonstrations of God that we see like in the book of Acts seem to be evidenced far more uh, often than they do in a prosperous, comfortable culture. I, I'm right there with you in saying, God, couldn't we just have you 
take us now, revive us, and we could be a healthy church. We don't need to go through extreme difficulty to have the strength of God revealed. I don't know that I have a, an answer for you uh, to that of how God wants to direct our nation, what his plans are for our nation. I know that he set apart this nation from the very beginning to be a light unto the nations. And it has been. It isn't a very strong light now. Uh, in fact, I would say we're harming the nations uh, right now, which is a very, very sad statement. But God had a purpose for this country. Whether or not that purpose has expired and we've moved past it, it's hard for me to comment on. I crave that the purpose of this country would be rekindled and that there would be yet again another revival here. I do. However, if God's design for us is a greater weakness, I just want you to recognize what comes out of that. I don't want us to fear difficulty. I want us to cherish that if God wants to bring us into a season of thinness where maybe this nation needs to have the heavens blocked for three and a half years so that we turn to God. That's exactly what's going to happen to Israel. You know, the end of those three and a half years, what are they going to do? They're going to turn away from Baal unto Jehovah. Didn't last as long as it should have. However, there was a turning. There was a repentance. The Lord, he is the God. Jehovah, he is actually the God, is what was happening. Who through faith were made strong out of weakness. 1 Kings 17, 9. I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. The church of Jesus Christ, what a unique thing that if we were going to say, what is God going to use? What is he going to do? What is his plan? His plan is us, not just us in this room, the church. That's his plan. God, boy, you could probably do something a little better than that. Looking around at the American church, I, I have to admit that is one of my thoughts. God, why don't you bypass the church and just come in like smoke and fire and power, just boom out of heaven, you know, with your finger scrawl on the walls of the White House. You know, do something to awaken us out of our stupor, but, you know, do it politically maybe. Like just shakes up the ground, opens up and swallows some people, right? That would make a statement. And yet God uses a humble vehicle. I've, I've commanded a widow woman to do this. God, what? The church is a mess. The church is weak. Yeah, but that's who I've commanded to do it. I'm going to reveal the incredible qualities of an invisible heavenly realm in and through this body. Mark 12, 41 through 44. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. I know that helps, doesn't it? <laughs> so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. There's something there, and it's, it touches us in a place we don't really want to be touched. Putting in out of our poverty. Whenever there's weakness and we put in and we invest in the kingdom of heaven. When we are weak and we still choose to give, we still choose to invest, that's something very, very precious in the heavenlies. Giving in scarcity. When resources are scarcest, pour out that which you do have. 1 Kings 18.2, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. 
So we're in Israel, the northern kingdom, and Samaria is the capital like Jerusalem is for uh, Judah. And so there was severe famine. This is in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, uh, and it was a very dark time in Israel's history, and this is when all this is unfolding. 1 Kings 18.24, Elijah said, do you guys remember uh, this is all being built to this Mount Carmel test where you have the prophets of Baal uh, and uh, the grove that are taking on head-to-head one prophet of Jehovah. And this is the, the declaration. Elijah said, you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. We have a test. It's a demonstration of power. One man against, what was it, like 700. I mean, it's just an extraordinary demonstration, but all Israel is coming up to Mount Carmel to witness this. The God who's gonna answer by fire, let him be God. Now, just remember what time period we're in. Extreme drought. Can you think of a worse thing to come up? It's like the God who answers by water, let him be God. I mean, the God who answers by fire, I don't know that we really wanna see that, do we? This is quite a risk. The God who answers by fire in the middle of a drought, 1 Kings 18, 32 through 34. And with, so the, the prophets of Baal have done their little stunt. They've tried to call down fire. Nothing's happened. Elijah mocks them. It's one of the most hilarious moments in uh, all of history. And with the stones, now, he, now it's Elijah's turn. And with the stones, he, Elijah, built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Okay, now, most of us fail to remember this is in the middle of a drought. What is Elijah asking for? The same way he came to a widow and said, give me a cup of water. And it's probably the one on the shelf that says, my last cup. Could you give me the last bit of flour? Oh, and by the way, while you're at it, could you put in the last bit of oil? Thank you. Because what does God want to do? He wants to do something supernatural. But he needs to test. He needs to weaken something so that he can prove his strength through it. Bring four barrels of water. You know how valuable water is in Israel? In fact, I'm going to guess that before all this, he's going to recruit the last remaining water in Israel up to Mount Carmel. That's just my guess. It's not there in the text, but that's still my guess because it fits the context of the story. It says, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Imagine what a waste that would feel like. You see, what you need to recognize what this is. This is a sacrifice. It's like you're setting a table, you're putting out a placemat, putting a, a plate on top, setting out the silverware, you're preparing a meal for God. You're feeding God first. You're feeding the prophet. Give me a cup of water first. He's giving God the cup of water. And he said, do it the second time. Do you imagine everyone looking around like, are you sure? And Ahab has no choice. Ahab cannot get water back unless he gives up everything he has. He's like, I'm all right. And so then they dump it a second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. All right, do we have anything left? Well, we have only this left. All right, dump that in too. Everything goes. Weakness. I mean, you're already weak. Who would ever go in that direction? 
those that want to see an abundance of rain. Those that desire to see the supernatural version of this thing. The church is weak. If God wants to weaken us more before he changes the course of everything, he's in charge. It's our job to be marked by faith and to trust him. This is the God who even when he asks for the little we have left, is able to supply. 1 Kings 18, 36 through 41, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So even the, the phraseology consumed, that's a term that we use for eating, and then licked, that's a term for, well, I don't know that many of us lick up our water, but it's interesting, it's, it's like a face. It's the, it's the functions of eating and drinking. This is like a meal, feed God first. What is God going to do? I mean, this is destitution, guys. We know that God is God. Yeah, sure. But now all our water is gone. And we have fire burning on the top of Mount Carmel in the middle of a drought. Okay, this could be disaster. It's the same way we look at weakness. It's like, this is disaster. Or is it? Are you sure this isn't the beginning of the greatest strength? And so as a result, to learn to cherish and appropriate the weakness instead of repel it is critical in our spiritual lives. And when the people, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink for there is a sound of an abundance of rain. You see, this is precisely what God does out of weakness. Eric, are you sure you don't have enough in there to buy tires? But God, if I give that up, then I won't have enough for the mortgage. You see, God wants to test us in our weakness and say, what are you going to do with that weakness? You have a little, but you have access to a lot. The way that you gain the a lot is by being willing to become weaker, by giving up what you have. First things first, if you need bread, which the widow and her son did, give up the little meal you have. Now, who are you giving up to? You're giving it up to God. Anything you entrust to God is a movement, a work of obedience. It's not just like, hey, let's all just give away our clothes and hopefully he'll dress us and clothe us before we get to our car. In other words, it's not stupidity, it's obedience. God is leading us, and when he touches on something, it says, will you let that go? We need to incline ourselves towards faith instead of just natural man reasoning. And I've had so many moments where I'm thinking, God, but I can't give that up because, and you fill in the blank, of a reason, because we all have them. God, I I have to hold on to my job because if I didn't have this, then you fill in the blank, and it's always some disastrous conclusion. However, if you saw what God is going to do in that same gap, God, I have to hold on to this because if I let that go, this could happen. Are you sure about that? Don't you believe you're God? 
that when we give in our weakness and we give out of our weakness, we serve and we give up the remaining strength we have that he supplies at a supernatural level. If you need rain, what should you do? Give up the little water you have. If you need energy, give up the little energy you have. I've had this, especially when my kids were younger, uh, it, was, it seemed like it was almost like a daily uh, testing of Eric Ludi. And that is, I would come home, and my kids always were wired for sound, and I would be, like, tired. And so out of 100 uh, degrees of energy, I might have five left. Okay, so I'm sort of limping in, and my kids come running around and are hugging my legs. And then one of them's like, could we wrestle? Wrestle? Wrestle sounds like the exact opposite of what you want to do when you're feeling weak. And so, God, I don't have enough strength. I have nothing left. Well, Eric, are you sure about that? I see uh, five points of strength still in your tank. What do you do with those five points of strength? And I literally have proven this true, guys, is that when I'm down to my last five points of strength and I give it, that then my tank fills again. I've had times where I'm praying in the middle of the night and I am so tired. You know that type of tired where if you're walking, you can still fall over. I'm concerned I'm going to hit my head on the coffee table as I'm pacing around it. I'm even moving. It's like, how could you fall asleep when you're moving? Oh, I can do that right now. And I just have to press through it. I have no strength left, but I know that God is asking me to stay up and pray. Oh, it's hard. And yet what I've seen is a supernatural increase where I have more energy at two in the morning all of a sudden than I've ever had in the middle of the day. Wow, God, you're doing something, but I had to empty the tank first. I have had situations in missionary school where God asked for my last dollars and I needed saline solution. If you have contacts, you know what I mean by that. Without sailing solution, I mean, your world's going to come to an end. All's going to go dark. But God, this is all I have. Eric, would you give it? All I had was like five bucks. I mean, God, this is all I have. And I give it. And I tell you what, I have seen God prove faithful and get me sailing solution and more at the same time. I've watched him do this. And you know, it's always harder. When you only have $5, it's hard. But when you have more, it's even harder. And there's more justifications and rationalizations to sort of weave in. I just want us to freshly allow God to touch this in our life. If you need strength, give up the little strength you have. If you need time, give up the little time you have. If you need God, give up being a God in your own life. If you need life, give up your life. Matthew 10, 39, he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16, 25, whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Mark 8, 35, whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. Luke 17, 33, whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Dump out the precious barrels of water during the drought and the abundant rains will surely follow. It's hard to dump out barrels of water anytime. It's extra difficult in a drought. And so if you're in a place of weakness right now, which I'm guessing out of a room this size, there's probably a good percentage of you that have points of weakness in your life. Whether it is psychological, you know, that smallish feeling that you've been struggling with, whether it's physical weakness, or whether it's just practical weakness in your life, your funds are low. That in this time to look at that as an opportunity and to be bold in your faith instead of extra conservative. It was like, oh, no, I need to hold on to everything. But even if you don't have the 100 points of energy and you're down to five, 
to give those five points over to God. Say, God, here's my remaining energy. Here's my remaining water. Here's my remaining flour. Here's my remaining oil. And you can trust him with it. It doesn't mean he's always going to ask you to just give it to someone on the street. God doesn't always do it the same way. I could give a story of what he's done in my life, and you'd be like, so is that what he's going to do with me? Probably not. He's going to do something unique to you. But for all of us, he still needs to ask of us what, what remains. And we still need to present it. Just like Abraham, God's going to ask for Isaac. And he still has to raise the knife. And some of us are like, well, so if I raise the knife, he gives it back? Well, the widow had to give up the oil, had to give up the flour, had to give up the water, and then. And for many of us, we want, it's like, okay, so I'm going to, as I'm giving this little bread cake to you, God, I need to see the flour increase, otherwise I'm going to hold on to it. You ever have that? It's like, we'll make a, a trade. It's like, I give you this, and at the same time, you cause the flour to increase in the barrel, and then I know that I can trust you, as opposed to, will you give it to me and let me eat it and digest it and go, hmm, before you see anything. Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Blessed are those who trust God in their weakness and are willing to risk in faith on God. Dump out the precious barrels of water during the drought and the abundant rains will surely follow. Let's finish with Philippians 3, 3 through 8. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, this is Paul speaking, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. You see, he has a lot in his pantry. He has a lot to give up. He has a lot of self-confidence here, a lot of reasons, things to hold on to. It's a form of spikenard in the Jewish culture to have these things. It's esteem, it's clout. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may gain something better, all things. So what I'm going to say for us is I don't know what all things is to us. Very likely it's not the fact that you were a Pharisee uh, in ancient Israel that you need to give up. In other words, we have different things, but it's still all things for us. And that we would recognize that what we are gaining is so much greater. And that's the eyes of faith that must see that. What we are gaining is so superior to what we are giving up. Don't feel sorry for yourself that God is asking for all things or asking for everything. I, I, I look at it more, who's getting the bad end of the deal on this one? Think about it. God gets our little handful of pebbles and he's giving us train loads full of jewels. And we're like, but God, why do you have to ask for every one of the pebbles? He's like, do you see what, what in the world what kind of logic is that? You should feel sorry for God. It's like he's getting the short end of the stick. What a terrible investment you're getting, God. You get us. We get you. You get all we have, which isn't very impressive. We get all he is. So instead of bemoaning, 
the fact that we have to give up everything? Why don't we cherish the fact that we're getting Christ forever and always? Father, I pray that you would work in us via your Holy Spirit to bring us to that point of relinquishment, of letting go, of trust, of confidence, just as you worked in that widow woman to let go of that last water, that last flower, that last oil, and to relinquish her son unto Elijah. Lord, I pray that you would also do the same in us and that we would see the power of Almighty God revealed in this earth because of it. Lord, here we are, your church. Please showcase your strength in and through our weakness. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. To take this specific message deeper through our daily Thunder discussions, visit ellerslie.com, where you can also explore our sermon library or learn more about joining us in person at the Church at Ellerslie here in Windsor, Colorado. Thanks for listening.